You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of Bloom in Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom. Each episode, we get together to talk about the collision of technology, media, and entertainment. And uh, this week, we have a fun guest, Neil Blomkamp, who is the fascinating, uh, interesting director of such beloved films as District 9. He has more recently been involved in a series of other ventures, uh, including a film opening this weekend called Demonic. It is, a, as he calls it, a horror film with sci-fi components to it. I think it is probably more science fiction-y with some horror aspects about it, the way, say, Alien was, perhaps a little bit less gut-wrenching than that. But he is an interesting fellow to talk with. He's got a lot going on. We got into things like volumetric capture, which is uh, all throughout the film, the notion of a priestly SWAT team and uh, his work with Godzilla Games and some of the work he's doing with short films. In the last few years, what made him decide to go and do a feature-length project again, the big projects he's got in his back pocket that he's hoping to get to next if pandemic allows it and budgets and all the rest, and some of the work he thinks about when he's creating any film, any project that he does. He also has been doing some interesting stuff with his fans, giving away some content for them to uh, play around in and actually even recut uh, some of his short projects. Kind of fascinating stuff. Love the conversation with Neil. The film is demonic. And without further ado, here is our conversation. We'll be right back in a second. And here's my conversation with Neil Blomkamp, director, writer, producer of Demonic. So Neil, just uh, finished watching the film, very interesting little project. Tell me a little bit, uh, if you'd like, about getting this darn thing made in the middle of a pandemic. I, I particularly given the amount of uh, visual effects. I know that's your background, but still, given the amount of visual effects here, it couldn't have been simple. Well, the film is the result of, of COVID. I mean, it's, it's like the whole thing exists because, because there was a gap in, in you know, Hollywood taking a few months to just sort of assess what was going on. And I always wanted to do a small self-financed horror film, so it felt like the perfect timing to do it. It was like, it was an awesome, moment to just pick up that idea and, and kind of run with it but i didn't i didn't actually ha- i didn't know what i would make if i ever were to do a small horror film so i kind of went through um, a bunch of different ideas that i had and one of the things that i always wanted to experiment with was volumetric capture which right. is i've written about the stuff it's cool that you did it what what, what <laughs> stuff did you write about with it like what was what was the use cases for it I was thinking in some of the, you know, there's a bunch before the pandemic hit, say 2019, yeah. there was a whole bunch of volumetric studios opening here in L.A. Yeah. You know, I think Sony had one. There was a couple down in the Playa Vista it's area. All. And, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of them. And I went and visited some of those, got captured and turned into a puppet and things like that. And so I, I got a sense of it at that point. Mm-hmm. But this is actually much more fully flavored, though it does feel a bit like The Sims. <laughs> 
<laughs> a little yeah. bit in that isometric viewpoint that you use, I think, yeah. probably purposely, right? So Yeah, it's my favorite shot in the movie. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. So, But you had not worked in volumetric. You've worked in so much other stuff. You hadn't worked in volumetric before? No, I mean, I don't know if this is one of the companies that you covered, but um, Metastage, which is yeah. backed by Microsoft, I spoke to them a lot about, like, we got closer and closer to doing something, and I kept throwing different ideas at them. The crazy thing was that when the pandemic began and it was like, well, let's do a small horror film and then let's put volumetric capture into it. I couldn't use Metastage because the borders were shut. So then it became like we had to find a Canadian studio, which was VCS, which is headed up by Tobias Chen. And then he built the rig for us and we started to learn how to, how to actually do it. But um, it was much more work than I was expecting. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks almost exactly like what I had in mind, which is, which is cool. So like, the, the expected look quality was the same as what I had in my head. What was not the same was how difficult the process would be. Now, that's interesting because one of the things I find interesting about this and the sort of virtual production stuff is the way it provides an opportunity to front load this process instead of shooting a bunch of stuff on a green screen or whatever and then throwing it up to your, your post-production visual effects wizards into a, basically a black box and hoping to God that they see things the way you see things, right? I mean, there's obviously a lot of back and forth, but it's it's a little bit, you've got more upfront control. Is that accurate in terms of my perception? Well, the thing that's different is there's a misconception about volumetric capture and virtual production. Because the problem, virtual production is incredibly well suited towards motion capture, right? Like really well suited to motion capture. Almost any case that you can think of is a case of what the director is looking at in a viewfinder in a virtual production setting is almost always a proxy for what they will eventually create. Right. And the difference, the difference with this was, although it took several months to compute the volumetric data into something usable, once we looked through virtual cameras, what we were looking at was actually what would become the final movie. We were looking at actual footage, basically. And that's, that's the thing about this film that I think is incredibly weird and unique. The VR sequences were built in a game engine. Right, Unity, right? Yeah, and, and what you're seeing through your virtual camera is, is, is no different than what you would see on set looking through a real viewfinder. What you see is what you're going to get. So you can move your lights around and you can do the stuff that, that, volume, that um, virtual production promises, right. except you can actually do it. Like, it's for real. <laughs> You can reach out, grab it, and just essentially virtually shove it around. Yeah, but you but you can do you can do that you can do that in virtual production as well. The difference yeah. though is that it's a proxy. Right, it's a proxy. Right. So yeah. this is this is the real. This is real. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's real time. I guess is the best way to put it, right? Real time. But it's it's also real, as in it's what the audience will see. It it is yeah. the final image in the yeah. camera. How long you had all this process of computing the worlds that you were creating? What was that time frame in terms of? actual once you got to the actual footage shooting and all that what was the time frame for that part of the production i guess the sort of traditional production shooting schedule the traditional shooting was 20 days 20. It was either 19 or 20 days i don't remember 19 and and then and then we broke for two weeks and then we shot four days of volumetric capture and then it took about three or four months to compute the volumetric capture into usable three-dimensional files that were sent to UPP in the Czech Republic, who's an awesome VFX company, headed up by Victor Muller. And they integrated that volumetric, the actors, with the environments that we had photogrammetry 
captured and they were married together. Is this a process that you perceived that you would use again, that you liked it well enough, that this is something you would do again for a specific project? It's, it's, the, see, the problem is the, the way that you use volumetric capture, I'm sure I'll use it again because I love it, but the way that you use it at this, at this place in its evolution is that you have to embrace all of the glitches and the errors that it comes with. So it's, it's very did. hard. You really do. I know. Right? No, this movie, this movie is designed to do that, right? But right. it's like, it would be hard to think of another way to do that. See what I mean? Because it's like either either it looks photoreal, right. like people expect with VFX, right. or it doesn't. If it doesn't, you have to justify it in the story. So I'd, I'd like to use it again, but I have to solve how to write it into the script. <laughs> that, that totally makes sense, because I mean, I thought it was a very con I mean, I, I was pretty sure it was a conscious uh, aesthetic choice to have the glitches. I mean, it's almost like the, the music producer who drops in the sound of what sounds like a you know hops and skips on a on a record on into the music to give it an old school kind of feel, right? Uh, or a cassette tape, you know, stretching of the tape. So it sort of felt like you were doing that almost with this. It's true, but but the difference is that is that if we didn't want that look, we couldn't have changed it. Right. So it's more like it's more like you're making that creative decision pre-filming. Right. You're taking a bug and turning it into a feature. Yeah, you're 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 committing to it. Now, the other thing I found fascinating about this in thinking about volumetric capture is really you're dealing with several different layers of I'll use the word reality very loosely here, right? So you've got your volumetric capture VR space, you've got the real Thing where they live, they think they live. You've got dreams, you've got flashbacks, you've even got uh, the night scope, right? That's a whole other way to look at reality mm -hmm. with the night scope. So you're playing with a sensibility about what is real and what is not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's meant to decay a little bit, like after the nightmare. Well, it starts decaying really from the first simulation, yeah. but the actual nightmare that she has, like it's uh, it, it's meant to unground the audience a bit because then you don't know like what what is real and what isn't. Right, and that's where the music comes in as well, obviously. So it sounds like it's a whole bunch of, of subsonic creepiness in the music to try to throw you off as well. But yeah, unsettling the audience is the whole point of a of a horror film, right? Otherwise, what's why bother? Yeah, right? that was the only goal. That was that was my goal. My goal was to create a sense of unsettled dread for the audience. Yeah, and you wrote this. Uh, by yourself? Yeah. Right? Okay. Is horror, you can do an inexpensive little horror film like this and find an audience. That's one of the great things about it. Jason Blum has had extraordinary success with that. Do you see yourself doing these kinds of projects at some point in the future? I know you've got several things on your plate. Yeah, I, I, I would happily do more stuff like this, you know. I mean, I probably want to bring the budget up a little bit because it was so bare bones, but relatively low budget, like maybe, maybe double or triple this, like yeah. I'd be, I'd be stoked to do stuff like that for sure. Would we still be under 10 million? This is one, this is 1.9 million, right? At, at three times you'd be under six. So yeah, it's right. like, is, is that Canadian or US? <laughs> shit. I don't know the answer to that. That's a good question. My brother would know. I think it's, I think that's, I don't know. I don't know. That's okay. a good question. Are you, uh, I understand you are got a couple other projects underway what's the time frames on district 10 say and and i think inferno is the other ones you've got coming up after this yeah inferno inferno is is definitely bubbling along too inferno is cool i mean i think the most uh the most immediate one is um is a is a larger science fiction film that i've written that i'm pretty excited to make Okay. So that that's like the immediate foreground that okay. I want to get going on. Yeah, that, that would be the first sort of big budget sci-fi yeah. film you've done in several years. Six, six years, yeah. So you're ready to jump back in that pool? Yeah, yeah. No, I want to get back. I want to get back into into uh, 
filmmaking for a, for a chunk of time now. You've been doing some interesting little projects with your studio, uh, these shorts, and I think that a lot of them were sort of thematically connected. Is that correct when you were putting them out? Well, not really thematically connected. I mean, they were maybe tonally or genre connected, okay. but, um, yeah. they, but they are independent. And, and something like the cooking show, like Cooking with Bill or God, I mean, those are just... <laughs> That's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, that one seemed a little uh, off-brand, I'll just say. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody's doing a cooking show now. Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton, there you go, exactly. I mean, it seems to me there's an interesting through line in your career, though, between this DIY, almost DIY, you know, leveraging mm. tools on the one hand, and mm. uh, to, to make something off with virtually no money by Hollywood standards. And then mm. these big ones that have been mm. big swings at the fence. How does that process work for you in deciding, okay, I want to do this, or I've got this opportunity, you've been attached to a zillion things over the years, and I mean, how do you decide which way to go? How did, I mean, in Demonic, you uh, almost didn't have a choice, right? It's like, I got to do something. Yeah, I just wanted to do something while everything was on pause. I mean, you know, it's more, it's more a case really of, it's just kind of like whatever, whatever feels creatively right. I don't, I don't, I'm not really hung up about budgets or, or like the, the scope of a project. If, I mean, it's cool. Like if you, if you do something uh, at, at a higher budget that's in like thousands of theaters, it's, it's, that's awesome. That's a form of creativity, but it's yeah. equally awesome to go and make a bunch of weird YouTube videos. You know, like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like equally comfortable with all of them, but I think, I think that when filmmakers do something that is like demonic or something like, like oats, it just, it puts your, it puts you closer to the making of the artwork yourself, you know, because obviously like as the budget scales up, there's, there's more and more levels of disconnect from the actual thing that you're making. Right. You know what I mean? Whether it's like, like a piece of wardrobe or applying makeup to the actor or like whatever it is, you just get further from it. Right. And it's, that's your job. I mean, your job is you're supposed to direct the crew to tell them what you want. But when I, when I first was starting off, I found, it, I found it frustrating how far away my hands were from touching the pieces of art that I wanted to make. And that just increases with budget. So for me, I could see myself kind of oscillating between, between them kind of forever. Yeah, I, I could see that very easily. How, how would you, I mean, it's a horror film. How do you describe the film? How, when you thought about it initially, what was your vision for it? Well, I mean, the thing, the thing that made me want to make it was this idea of blending horror tropes with science fiction elements. So I, I would say it's predominantly horror, but it's, and it's, but it's not class, it's not, it almost isn't horror. So it's like it's it's closest to horror with a lot of science fiction. You know, it's interesting because I just happened, I was writing about uh, Paramount Plus, the streaming service that Viacom CBS has just launched this year, and they have a new show called Evil, which thinks about some of these same issues of possession and, and in, in an almost philosophical way. They've got a true believer, played by Mike Coulter, and they've got a, uh, Asif Man Manvi as this like carpenter who's very pragmatic, and then this, this therapist. And it's almost like, I, I wrote, I sort of joked, it was like a setup for a joke, you know, because... But it's it's real, it's narrative? Like yeah, it's, it's a it's, narrative it's, series. It's on, right. it's on Paramount Plus only, not on CBS. And it's sort of interesting what they deal with, but I mean, they're, it's like they're diving into some of the same questions you are about, is this really possession? Is, this, is there some real world ex explanation for this? What's going on? And you, of course, in this one, you've gone closer to the, it's real, you know, it's really happening. But that whole conversation seems like it's in the air a little bit again. I guess we're all yeah. possessed by, uh, yeah. by, by these things. How does, how does the, other than the fact that you were sort of forced to step back and figure out what am I going to do next, how did COVID-19, the world's response to it,
Canada is still largely shut down. Did, did that filter into some of the creative process too, though? Just this this back uh, backstory of us all being possessed by this pandemic? Not consciously. I mean, it's highly possible that there that, that there are many elements in it that are subconsciously there. Um, yeah. Maybe that's where the whole like anxiety and dread that I wanted to put into the film came from. I don't, I don't know, but. I know that on a conscious level, I didn't want to make a pandemic film. So <laughs> I, I knew that consciously, for sure. When you were shooting, I mean, uh, obviously a small budget, small crew. How, how many folks were on set at any given moment? I'm not sure. I, th I think it was around 25 people. Okay. And you had a very, but very few people on screen at one time. So it's not like you yeah. had... I mean, that's almost, was that informed by some of the limits of production? Or yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 it really just was... Uh, you know, again, if I come back to this idea of wanting to make a self-financed small horror film, which is it, it, which is like when you talk about the DIY kind of you know nature of how I've gone from that to higher budget to that, it's like when I saw Paranormal Activity, it's like I I don't mind if you can get a higher budget to do something. I want to try and do that. I want to try and do something shot in my own house with a horror setting. Yeah. Like what what would that be like? So. I thought I, I remember I remember thinking that around 2010 at least. So it's more than a decade old. Where I was like, I really at some point I want to do this, and it was always floating around in my head. Where when I would see something that was like a location or something interesting or a way that you could approach that, I always was aware of it. And when the pandemic happened, it was like that's the goal. Like this is cool. This is a time now where because everything else is on pause, we can actually try and do this. And so the limited cost. Is a result of I, I I almost can't tell if it's a result of the financial constraints or if it's a result of the genre of something like Paranormal Activity is the goal. So you know I don't know is it a, is it a financial constraint or is it like that's what the goal is? It's it's not clear to me. Yeah yeah, yeah it is sort of an interesting notion. I mean the genre we couldn't afford more actors. <laughs> right exactly. Put it that we, way. More bodies is like we can't do yeah. that. We just need to like use people's imagination for goodness sake. In, in terms of is this like, I guess this is the sort of thing that you've created a fairly interesting backstory on this that you could do other things with. You know the idea of yeah. a priestly SWAT team. It's kind of interesting, you know, the prequel on what they were doing before this story is, would be an yeah. interesting... I, I, I agree. I mean, the original, the original idea, the thing that I, that I took to put into this um, was, what, was kind of what you're saying, which is this idea of the Vatican acting in a 21st century kind of way and, yeah. and buying, up, buying up like tech companies and all these, these companies that would give them a window into who may be possessed. And that, that idea can be scaled up like massively. I mean, you could do something yeah. really large with that idea, you know, that isn't at this budget level. Yeah, it wouldn't just be a volumetric capture of the Sistine Chapel either, so though I guess that would be one, one usage by the church, right? Tell me a little bit about that cooking with Bill thing. I'm sort of fascinated. What, what was that about? What was that motivation? I mean, that's the point, right? The point is, like, I don't have to justify that stuff to anyone. That's what's so <laughs> awesome about oats. It just is what it is. Right. I don't even know why it's called oats. Like, that's kind of the same thing. It's like every element of that is, like, it's just going to be whatever it wants to be. Okay. It's uh, it's possessed, even. So the next the next project is a big science fiction. Can you say any more about that project? You've written it? You've got a deal? You're waiting for a deal? What's going on with that? Uh, I've written it, and I have a deal. We just need to... We just need to figure out how to actually make it and if it fits in the budget. But obviously we've got a resurgent challenge going on with the pandemic. Absent the ability to shoot that, do you have a plan B? 
Well, I, I, now I want to do something at a higher budget level again. So okay. this time I'd probably wait it out, I think. And what, are you, what are you keeping yourself busy with other than promotion for this uh, little jewel of a film? I have a, you know, that mostly, that, that, that science fiction film mostly. Um, but there, there, I have a few other projects that we're just busy developing and just kind of getting, getting ready. So yeah. I feel actually quite, quite busy. Um, and then I'm, I've also joined a video game company, which I'm really stoked about. Oh, called really? Godzilla. Yeah, I'm, I'm like part of Godzilla. Uh, Godzilla Games. Oh, that's right. Which is, right. Yeah, which is in, they're in Kiev and Frankfurt. Right, right. Uh, I remember seeing something about that Godzilla. So the the steps from volumetric to the game space obviously pretty tiny. They use some of this stuff. So, what's your component of that that engagement with them? Are you doing story ideation? Or are you helping? Yeah, them? I, I, it kind of more of more of a more of a director really. Uh, but I, I still am. I am still part of the team, and there's a lot of game veterans that are on the team, so I have to interface with them in a way that, um, like, it's not just my my way, like it would be on a feature. Right, um, right. Yeah, so I can bring a point of view, and it's like, this is what Neil would do, and then we kind of talk it out and see what works for the game, and then best idea wins, you know. A really interesting challenge, though, because you've got a, it is a totally different dynamic. It's a wholly, to, a totally different production arc, you know, and process. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they have, you know, there, there are some seriously talented, like, veterans in there. So the cool thing is they know what they're doing. I mean, I, I am just, I am just like a creative sounding board. It's like the, it's like the, the, the sort of paintbrush and the veneer that goes over the game could be attributed more to, potentially to me, um, if, if my ideas work. Uh, but not the not the mechanics of it. It's like I mean, more experienced people need to do that. Right. That's a different way of thinking, though. Uh, just I mean, uh, the scripts it's eight hundred pages instead of a hundred, and and branching uh, outcomes and open worlds. Very well, this 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 is a multiplayer shooter, so okay. it's like it's slightly it's more about the actual living world than it is um, eight hundred pages of script. Are you a gamer yourself? Yeah, I would say kind of. All right, I, I say that too, but I probably say it even more skeptically of myself than you may say it of yourself. So you say kind of in what ways? Well, I, I, I think I genuinely am a gamer in the sense that if you put me into like a multiplayer game, I will be able to hold my own. So like I definitely know how to play games well, but right. I, I don't play them as much as people that are gamers play them. So that would be, that would be my answer. Like I'll kind of sample a game right. and get into it a little bit and then move on to something else or, or go through months of not playing and just be doing film, and then something else will come out that may catch my interest. So I'm, I'm sort of like well-versed in it, but I, it doesn't consume hours of screen time. I was just uh, last week or the week before testing out the new Netflix uh, in-person VR experience tied to their Zack Snyder movie, Army of the Dead. Oh, yeah. And it's very well done. They've got it in four cities right now. They're going to put it in 17 more. They'll take it to Europe. I'm sure they'll take it. I think it's going to be in Toronto. I don't know if it's going to get to Vancouver. It's in Vegas and D.C. and New York as well as L.A. right now. Very, very well done. They got merchandise. They got food they sell, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very sophisticated stuff. Is something like that as a spin-off maybe of a, something like a demonic? Is that something that I mean? Because you already are doing this this space that people can be inside as a game or a VR experience. Is that something that that you think about now a little bit? Maybe you didn't yeah. think of five years ago, given your background. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I mean, if anything is uniquely suited to this, it's this film, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you, 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 tr we truly, I mean, not only could we, we are in the process of turning the, the simulation scenes into livable VR environments. Okay. True, 
actual Unity-based real-time rendering stereoscopic 3D. And then where does that end up going next? Is that going to be an experience at some point, at some level on an Oculus? It won't, it won't be anything like, like what Netflix is doing. It's more just I, what I want to be able to do, kind of like what we did with Oats, is give it to audience members that may be interested. If you want to download it, you can go here. But obviously you need like you need a headset, yes. a setup. But, but for home use, but I mean obviously if you... I mean, you're, you're, you want to give them some, some, some building blocks and see what they do with it? Is that your thought? Uh, that's another idea. I want to do that too. But, but first, what I want to do is just give them the files so that they can just watch the scenes. All of the simulation scenes, you could be in that environment. The actors would be five foot seven next to you. You'd watch it from the perspective, well, if they're five seven, you're watching it from the perspective of... You, could, you, could choose, you can choose your perspective. Okay. You can walk around in there with them. I mean, it's like true VR. There's so much fake VR. There's so much like 360 degree cameras and so like, it's. I don't know any film that has done this. Yeah, I don't either. I think it's really fascinating uh, as an as a notion and an opportunity. It's, it's more than fan service, though. I mean, if you could really turn them loose, it's like letting again going back to music production, giving the fans some stems to remix something, right? I mean, mm. conceivably, you could do some mm. cool stuff and then use that to build out connections to the film or the the narrative world. Yeah. But it's a new way to think for a filmmaker, I think. You at least come with this background of Unity and VFX and going way back. So for you, it's probably a much more natural language to think about it. We, we actually gave away all of the Oats assets on Steam. They're all DLC elements that are downloadable. So it's, it's like the VFX version of Stems. Right, right, exactly. Did anybody do anything cool with them that you saw? Yeah, yeah, cool. a lot of people, actually. Anything that you could collaborate, use, bounce off of, do anything with? I mean, I, that's not how I wanted it to happen. It's more, it's more like I imagine myself as a 17-year-old. If I could get my hands on something that was, you know, a piece of film that I liked, it would have been really cool. So it's not, it's like I don't, I don't see how we would be able to use what fans are making. It's more like I want them to be able to remix stuff. Another idea that we wanted to do with Racco was give away all of the footage, all of the footage. So you can theoretically cut the, you could recut it. I think we are actually doing that. I think Vancouver Film School, or one of the film schools, has taken all of the footage. So you, you, you have selection of, I don't know. I think my brother just told me about it, like, because he handles all that stuff. But I think it's Vancouver Film School. I need to double check. Well, listen, I think I'm about out of time, but I really appreciate your time and enjoyed the film. It, uh, I'm not even a horror guy, but I wanted to see what you were up to. And it's nice to see you made much better use of your pandemic break than I did. So uh, congratulations on that. I'm, I'm somewhat envious. And uh, thanks so much and good luck with the movie. Thanks, David. Thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks for having me. Okay, ciao. So that was my conversation with Neil Blomkamp, the director of Demonic, uh, which is out this weekend in theaters, and uh, a lot of other stuff that you may want to check out through his Oats studio films, such as Chappie, which didn't get as good a, rep uh, a reception as his, uh, his calling card, District 9, and other projects in between. But uh, done a lot of great stuff, and as you, as you can see, a really interesting guy who thinks a lot about how we marry technology and entertainment in fascinating ways to create something. I love the fact that he was talking about using the limits of the technology to provide an aesthetic experience. And I think that that's really important to think about as we deal with the limits of our tech and our tools of all kinds. Art lives in the limits, I like to say. Anyway, if you enjoyed this particular uh, episode or Bloom and Tech in general, please rate, review, share, and subscribe. 
If you really like the show, please consider taking advantage of Anchor FM, which is the place that syndicates and hosts my show. Their ability to um, subscribe and chip in a few dollars toward the uh, maintenance of this vaunted media machine. You can also use Anchor FM to leave an audio comment that I could work into a future episode. Love to hear what you guys think of the movie, what you think about Neil's work in general, and where you think volumetric capture is headed, because I do think it's an interesting new tool for filmmakers, game creators, and many others. With that, I will wrap this up. I hope you are doing well, staying safe, getting vaccinated, and taking care of those you love and those you don't even know. And without further ado, this is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Thank you.